0: major criticisms that you often hear about Christianity is that it is uh, repressive. How many of you have ever heard that about Christianity, that Christianity is uh, repressive? Maybe the first person to really give voice to that idea and to articulate it was the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And in a nutshell, here's how Nietzsche arrived at his conclusion that Christianity is repressive. Nietzsche looked out in the world, and he saw essentially two classes of people. One class was the nobility, they were the landowners, they were the wealthy, they were the powerful. And he argued that they operated by a set of morals that he believed were true to the best and to the strongest aspects of human nature. And he called their morality, he called it uh, master morality. The other class of people, naturally, were the the masses. These are people who served the nobility. He argued that the masses envied and resented the nobility, but they were too weak, and they were too timid to grab a hold of what they really wanted, and so they made a virtue, he said, of their cowardice. Christianity, in particular Nietzsche argued, amounted to this giant justification for passivity and a Mechanism for draining life of its potential, and he called this slave morality. And he believed it to be repressive to the best and the most noble aspects of human nature. Nietzsche was absolutely incorrect in his assessment of Christianity as repressive. Unfortunately, though, there are many churches who themselves promote a repressive pseudo-Christianity And as a result, give Christianity a bad name. Some of you may remember the writer uh, Sheldon Van Auken. He once wrote this in a book, a very famous book called A Severe Mercy. He said the best argument for Christianity is Christians, their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians when they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug in complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. And if you came out of that kind of a church that emphasized Christianity, taught Christianity as repressive, I'm very sorry, because that is not at all the essence of Christianity. Christianity isn't about repression at all. Christianity is about transformation, and there is an enormous difference. And the key agent in this process of transformation is the subject of the sermon series that we've been in for a number of weeks now called "The Ghost." And by the Ghost, of course, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, who is often referred to, in some circles, as the Holy Ghost. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. I'd like for you to turn to Ephesians chapter five. Dustin had you in the book of Ephesians last week, as he talked about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. I want to take you now to Ephesians chapter five. I want to talk about another aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit. Just a quick review of this series and where we've been so far. We've seen that every human being born on the earth since Adam and Eve's disobedience in the Garden of Eden has been born without the life of God in us, which is not how we were designed. Because of that, Jesus said that all human beings on earth need to be born again born of the Spirit, and that happens through believing in Jesus. And when we're born again, the life of God in the person of the Holy Spirit is put inside of us. He lives in us. He indwells us. We've seen so far in this series that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is not an it. He is not merely a force. He is not merely a power, though he has power, but he is a person. He is one of the three members, the three persons of the Trinity. We've seen that he brings his supernatural power to the spread of the gospel, and that he works in the world to convict people their need for Christ. And as I said last week, Dustin talked about being sealed by the Spirit, a sign that you are a member of the family of God and a down payment of the life that is to come in the next world. Okay, this week, we're gonna look at another aspect of the Holy Spirit and what the Bible refers to as being filled with the Spirit. And this is important because as I said, being filled with the Spirit Refutes Nietzsche's claim and our culture's claim that Christianity is about repression, not transformation. And I'll show you what I mean by that in a moment, but first let's go to the specific passage that refers to this idea of being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Verse 18, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. The apostle Paul is writing here, and he says, Do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, right off the bat, this is both confusing and controversial. It's confusing in that some of you are saying, wait a minute, I thought you just said a moment ago that when I believed in Jesus, when I was born again, that the Spirit of God came to live in me. He indwelled me. Why then does Paul say that I need to be filled with the Spirit? That's confusing. It's also controversial Because you may have heard people talk, uh, church people often talk about being spirit-filled. And uh, by spirit-filled, they mean that they speak in tongues. And if you come out of that kind of background, what Paul says here is going to be uh, very controversial to you. I want to divide what we're going to talk about today into two sections. The first is just this. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? That's number one. And then second, how does being filled with the Spirit make Christianity transformative, not repressive? So, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And then second, how does being filled with the Spirit make Christianity transformative and not repressive? Let's start with what it means to be filled with the Spirit. To get a sense of what this means, I want to start with the first half of this very fascinating comparison that Paul makes. He says, Don't be, do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Now, What's fascinating to me about this is that in order to introduce this profound point of the theology of the Holy Spirit, Paul compares being filled with the Spirit to to being drunk. Now, Now, why would he do that? And the answer is pretty simple. He knew these people to whom he was writing. Like, he knew their backgrounds, and he knew they understood from personal experience what it was like to be drunk. And so he brings it down to something he knew they understood. Now, by the way, I just want you to understand that this passage isn't saying that it's wrong to drink. It's not what it's saying. It's not saying it's wrong to have a glass of wine or a beer or margarita or a mimosa or whatever it is that you like. It's saying don't be drunk. And uh, if you aren't a wine drinker, Don't think that this doesn't apply to Bud Light or Jack Daniels or anything else. The big idea here is don't be drunk. And the word that's translated drunk is a word that literally means to be soaked or to be dominated or to be controlled. By alcohol, And he said, why not be drunk? Well, he says, and his audience knew, and I suppose, I don't know, I'm just guessing, I may be wrong about this, that there might be a few people here who understand that when you're under the control of alcohol, there tend to be negative consequences, right? Paul uh, uses a word that is translated debauchery here, which uh, it's a word, it sounds terrible, doesn't it? But the word simply means reckless. People who are drunk, are reckless. Now, maybe they're reckless with their words. Maybe it's, maybe they're reckless with their sexuality. Maybe they're reckless with their uh, anger. In general, their decisions are reckless because their judgment is impaired by the alcohol that's controlling them. Now, what's what's also fascinating about this comparison that Paul makes between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit is that it's really both. If you think about it, it's both a comparison and a contrast. It's a contrast in that while being drunk leads to destructive recklessness, being filled with the Spirit, we're going to see in a few moments, and we know this from other passages in the Scriptures, leads to positive transformation. So on the one hand, being drunk, reckless. On the other hand, being filled with the Spirit, positive. It's a contrast. But it's also a comparison, and the comparison is primarily this idea of control. When you're drunk, it's the booze that controls your life. When you're filled with the Spirit, it's the Spirit that is controlling your life. Now, here's what I want to do, because I understand that this, this, is, this can be somewhat confusing, understanding this difference between, on the one hand, being indwelled by the Spirit, and on the other hand, being filled with the Spirit. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you a visual picture that will help you understand what Paul means and so that you can understand this distinction between simply being indwelled by the Spirit, which every born-again Christian is, and then being filled with the Spirit, okay? And from the outset, let me tell you that this isn't a perfect analogy, but I think it's a good analogy. I think it'll help you understand. So, so here's what we're going to do. I want you to imagine human life as a car. So a car is, a car is powerful, Right? We come into the world given this powerful thing called life. And it comes with all sorts of neat features and trim packages. And like you have certain talents and you have some degree of intelligence and you have a unique personality and unique looks and you have a body and all sorts of these other features. And used right, a car can be an incredible blessing, can't it? Used right, a life can be a blessing too. But as I said a few minutes ago in my review of where we've been in this series, since Adam and Eve's disobedience of God in the Garden of Eden, every human being born into the world has been born without the life of God in them. It's not how we were designed, it's just how we were born. And so imagine, imagine a drunk four-year-old behind the wheel of a car. We come into the world with this powerful thing called life, but we do so without a licensed, qualified driver. The only licensed, qualified driver of human life is the Spirit of God. But we come into this world without the Spirit of God, so we're like a drunk four-year-old behind the wheel of this powerful car careening down the highway of life, crashing recklessly into people and other cars, and generally creating destruction and mayhem. Now, that's That's a picture, it's a visual picture of a person who has never been born again. A drunk four-year-old behind the wheel of a car, all right? No one but the drunk four-year-old behind the wheel of that powerful machine called life and no one else in the car with the drunk four-year-old. That's how we all come into the world. We're a world full of drunk four-year-olds driving cars, all right? Okay, this person now Suddenly realizes that they're careening recklessly down the highway of life with no real direction or purpose, and they realize they're not getting anywhere, and that they're creating more destruction than good. And they hear about Jesus, and they make a decision to believe in him. And when they do, as we know, the Spirit indwells them. So in our visual picture now of life as a powerful car, being indwelled by the Spirit means that the only licensed qualified driver for A car, for human life, is now in the car. He is indwelling the car. He's sitting in the passenger seat, let's say. He's not necessarily driving the car because the drunk four-year-old still wants to drive. He won't give the control of the car over to the licensed qualified driver. And so he's still careening down the highway of life. It doesn't have to be like that. You know, unlike before, unlike before this person before they were born again there's now someone in the car who can drive the car safely down the road of life but the drunk four year old isn't necessarily letting him drive and that's what it means to be indwelled by the spirit spirit's in the car now are you with me is this visual picture making sense okay so, so the, the spirit is in the car the licensed qualified driver that's what it means to be indwelled by the spirit only happens after you're born again but he's not necessarily driving Now, here's the difference between being indwelled by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. Being filled by the Spirit is when the drunk four-year-old relinquishes the control of the car to the licensed, qualified driver, the Holy Spirit. So when the drunk four-year-old says, okay, Holy Spirit, you drive, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Now, again, this isn't a perfect analogy, but it's workable, and if you don't like this analogy, please, by all means, express your dissatisfaction by sending your emails to Dustin at CityChurchEVV.com. <laughs> but I think it's workable enough that it can help you understand. And I want to just press this analogy just a little further. Notice that Paul says to these believers in Jesus, he says, be filled. Okay, So he says, don't be drunk with wine, that leads to debauchery. He says, He says to these believers, he says, be filled. These are people with the Holy Spirit indwelling them. So he's in the car, not necessarily driving. He says, I want you to be filled with the Spirit. In other words, I want you to let him drive. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, that's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. He couldn't have given that to them before being born again, right? Because the Holy Spirit wasn't even in the car with him. But now he's in the car. And Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. What he's saying is, you're a drunk four-year-old. You don't need to be driving a car. You need to get in the back seat of the car where you should have been in the first place, drinking apple juice out of your sippy cup and eating goldfish crackers. That's where you need to be. Let the Holy Spirit drive. And notice that this command to be filled with the Spirit—it's in the passive voice. This is God's way of saying you're a terrible driver. You need to be driven. You don't need to be driving. You need to ride passively in the car and let the Spirit do the driving. And so you see, this, this issue of being filled with the Spirit, it doesn't have anything to do with speaking in tongues or performing miracles. It's about letting the Holy Spirit being, uh, be the controlling power of your life who can get you down the road of life safely and to the life that God has for you. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, letting the Holy Spirit drive. Let Him drive your life. Now you might be wondering, Why does Paul even have to command us to be filled with the Spirit? And the answer is that a drunk four-year-old doesn't want to give up the wheel. He's got a taste for driving. He doesn't want to relinquish the control. Even people who are born again instinctively want to live live life the way that we think is best. We want control. And so we have to be told, we have to be reminded that we're terrible drivers, and that the Spirit of God is the only qualified driver of human life. This is why Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, because you need to be reminded, born again Christian, that the Spirit of God is there, He's in the passenger seat, but you need to relinquish control of the steering wheel of your life. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Years ago, um, my grandfather, back when he was still alive, he was in his. He was in his late 80s by that time, and I was about 20 years old or so, and somehow I got talked into riding in his car while he drove. He was a terrible driver by that time in his life. He was reckless. And we were coming out of St. Louis one day. He lived in O'Fallon, Illinois, just on the other side of the river. And we were headed back to his home, and he was all over the road. People were honking at him, and they were giving him the one-finger salute, which he thought was just them waving at him. And uh, there was this moment when we're headed straight for a concrete barricade on one of the entrance ramps uh, to the freeway out of St. Louis. And for some reason, uh, he hit the accelerator as we were headed toward this concrete barricade. I didn't believe in Jesus at the time, but I was praying, Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) And if you just think about it, there I sat in the car next to him, a perfectly capable, qualified driver. But no matter how much I begged him to let me drive, he wouldn't let me drive. And do you know why? Uh, It was because he was too stubborn and he was too prideful to give up the wheel. And that is us, folks. That's us. Even those of us who are born again Christians. We are too stubborn and we are too prideful to give up the wheel to the only qualified driver of human life, the Holy Spirit. Which is why Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Get out of the driver's seat and let the Spirit drive. One more thing about this command, the, the tense of the verb that Paul uses when he says to be filled with the Spirit. is a tense that conveys a continuous action, which in this case would mean keep being filled with the Spirit. Why does he use that tense? Was because, again, he knows that born-again people, even though we may give the Spirit the wheel uh, in one moment of our life, we keep wanting to take it back, don't we? I mean, that's our, that's our instinct. It's not like it's a one-time decision. Paul says you have to keep making the decision to let the Spirit drive. Being indwelt by the Spirit means that the Spirit is present in your life. He's in the passenger seat, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're giving, in the Spirit, uh, giving the Spirit the wheel of your life. Being filled with the Spirit means that you're continually and repeatedly giving the Spirit the wheel of your life. He is the controlling power in your life. So let's summarize the difference between being indwelt and being filled with the Spirit like this. If you're born again, you have all of the Spirit. But the command here is that the Spirit have all of you. You have all of the Spirit. He's right there. He's in the car. The command here, though, is that the Spirit have all of you. That he has the steering wheel. And that he's driving, not you. That's what it means to be filled. That's the difference between being indwelled and being filled. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does this make sense to you? Nod your head. Just say yes, even if you don't understand. Just say yes, make me feel good, okay? All right, good. That's what Paul means when he says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, the question is, the other question that I wanted to ask today is, how does being filled with the Spirit make Christianity transformative, not repressive? How does, it, how does this command to be filled with the Spirit refute the claim by Nietzsche and his Unwitting followers in our culture who argue that Christianity is repressive. Well, I want you to go back to the beginning of chapter 5. And I want you to see the context in which Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit. And I want you to start reading from verse 1. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us. And he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, if you were to go back and read the first four chapters of Ephesians, you'd see that Paul has laid out this breathtaking and this exhilarating exposition of God's purpose for the universe. And the depth and the extent of God's love has been laid out very clearly in those first four chapters his mercy his self-giving sacrificial love a love far greater than anyone could have hoped and so in verse one paul expects his readers to be so inspired by this love of god that they want to be imitators of it and i want you to notice the order he says be imitators of god as already loved children He's saying, live a life of love just as Christ loved you. People who are already loved and already sacrificed for it, now you go love. This self-giving love that has won their forgiveness and is the basis of their relationship with God is now also to be the inspiration for their living. And the characteristic that Paul is stressing is the sacrificial and selfless nature of the love of Jesus. That's what is to be imitated, a love that is sacrificial and selfless. Now, What's fascinating is what comes next. Paul applies this idea of selfless love to two of the most powerful ideas and creations of God. Sex and marriage. Verse 3. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Now, see, Nietzsche argued that the Christian view of sexuality was a classic example of the repressive nature of Christianity. This is slave morality, he would say. And let's not think that that was just something that was said in the 19th century. People say that today. They would say that, that Christianity is, is, is repressive, especially as it relates to sex, right? And I suspect that some of you here today think that this is an old school repressive view of sex that the Bible is teaching. But this isn't repression at all, nor is, it, nor is it old school. Ephesus, you see, was full of pagan worship. And in this pagan worship, they used sex in a degrading and self indulgent way. And Paul links this to greed and covetousness the use, uh, the using of someone else's body for selfish gratification, self being at the center. It's quite likely also that in Ephesus that there were people teaching, just as people do today, that what you do with your body has no effect on your soul. But Paul understands that God has created human beings as an intricate whole in which you cannot separate the body from the soul. The two are intricately entwined with one another. And so Paul isn't saying, he's not being repressive. He's not saying don't have sex because God is anti-sex and prudish. How could he be? God created it. No. Remember what Paul has just said in verses 1 and 2. Love people in the same unselfish, sacrificial, selfless way that God has loved you in Christ. People who love that way would never use another person. And they would never wound their soul for personal gratification, whether they lived in the first century or the 21st century. God isn't anti-sex. He is anti-self-indulgence. He is anti-personal gratification at the expense of someone else's dignity and soul. So Paul is just saying, take, he's taking this this. This idea of sacrificial love, and he's applying it to one of the most powerful creations of God, sex. Now, we don't have time to do it, but if you were to skip ahead to verses 21 to 33, Paul not coincidentally begins to talk about the one place that God designed sex to be expressed in, marriage. Verses 21 through 33, it's all about marriage, and the central idea, again, in those verses is that husbands and wives are to love one another in the same selfless, sacrificial way that Jesus loved us. So you got sex and marriage, and right in between these two powerful creations of God, sex and marriage, right in between, stuck right in between them, Paul's command to be filled with the Spirit. And why does he put that command in between the two? And what does that have to do with Nietzsche's claim that Christianity is repressive. Well, what Paul is saying by placing this command to be filled with the Spirit between these two powerful ideas and creations of God, sex and marriage, is that it is only when people are filled with the Spirit that we can love people in the way that Christ loved us in the context of sex and in the context of marriage. And this is the difference between repression and transformation. Transformation. Repression says, sexual desire is bad, so repress it, deny it, don't indulge it. But if you think about it, you don't have to be born again to not have sex. You don't even have to be loving to not have sex. Repression says, deny your personal desires, and then it says, stay married even though you don't want to. But you don't have to be a Christian to do that either. You don't have to be particularly loving to stay married. There are plenty of couples who stay married but who despise each other. Repression says deny your desires. They're all bad. Transformation, though, is about changing the way that you express those desires. It's about changing the way you treat people because you have been so loved by Christ. Transformation doesn't say repress your desire because it's bad. Transformation says Christ's love has so inspired you, so changed you, that it has changed the way that you express your desire, and it has changed the way that you look at everything in the world. You're no longer reckless. Yes, as it relates to sex and marriage, but not just sex and marriage. Christ's love is displayed on the cross, has changed the way you look. Yes, it's sex and marriage, but it's changed the way you look at money and power and career and parenting. And it's changed the way you look at everything. His love has changed the whole orientation of your life from reckless, self-gratifying, selfish life to the one that loves people selflessly and sacrificially in the same way that Christ loved you. Transformation changes the way you express desire in ways that are selfless and sacrificial. It doesn't repress desire. And the power that makes that transformation of desire possible in your life is the person of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the person of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that you can love another person sacrificially. by the power of of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit filling your life, taking control of the steering wheel of your life. If you're born again this morning, you have all of the Spirit. You have all of the Spirit. You just need to let the Spirit have all of you. Be filled with the Spirit and love people in the same selfless way that Christ loved you because that is the fruit of the Spirit, love, sacrificial love, manifested in peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is transformation, my friends, not repression, which means that Nietzsche is just a dead philosopher while Jesus is the living king of the world, living through you and me in the person of the Holy Spirit. Would you bow with me for prayer? We acknowledge, Lord Jesus, that there are many people and many churches today that teach a repressive form of Christianity, not a transformative version of Christianity. It is a pseudo-Christianity. It is not... Christianity at all and we affirm this morning as a congregation as a, as a body of believers that Christianity is not repressive but that it is transformative you do not tell us that desire is bad but that you tell us that we are to express our desires in ways that are selfless and sacrificial in the same way that you loved us And so, Lord, um, I pray this morning that maybe for those people who've never heard this, that you would bring them to a place that they recognize their need to be born again because they don't have the spirit of God living in them. And that they would acknowledge their sin and their need for a savior. And that they would believe that you, Lord Jesus Christ, are the savior of the world and the savior of their soul. And then, Lord Jesus, for those that maybe have come out of churches that are repressive and joyless. And Lord, I pray that you would give those people in this room this morning a new vision for what Christianity is, that it's about transformation, not repression. And then Lord, for all of us, as we think about things like sex and marriage, but every kind of desire that we might have in the world, that you would inspire us through the sacrificial, selfless love of Jesus as people who are already loved, that we would love other people in the same way by being filled with the indwelling spirit. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship today and that we pray. Amen.